You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Before we uh, get to the sermon this morning, um, obviously we have had um, quite a bit of um, news this past week. And uh, it's, never, uh, it's never the dream of uh, somebody who's a, a stand-in preacher to, to be preaching at a congregation when there's been so much uh, upheaval in our community, in our culture, in our, in our country. Um, so I understand that uh, you probably would like to hear from Mark this morning more than from me, um, but alas, you are stuck with me. Um, and I completely identify with what that must feel like for you guys um, but it is, it's what we have, and it's where we are. And the nice thing is that we'll be together. I'll be preaching uh, this week and then the following two weeks. So we'll be able to establish somewhat of a, a reputation with each other or a rapport, or maybe you're just, maybe I won't see you next week. Either way, um, I hope that, um, I hope that uh, this morning will um, be a blessing to you as we look at the Scriptures together, as we consider the current events that have happened this week and this month. Um, I hope that that... Um, that will be an encouragement to you. So uh, before we get to the sermon, um, I, I emailed with Mark this week, and uh, he was gracious to, to dialogue with me while he's on vacation. And um, we, we decided that a time of prayer to begin our service would be appropriate, uh, given uh, the events of the past week, uh, uh, the violence that we've seen, um, and the racial tensions that have emerged. Uh, is very, very uh, important matters for prayer for us. And so what I'd like to do is I'm going to kind of uh, shorten my sermon so that we can have uh, some moments of guided prayer time. And it, um, it's going to be silent. There's not going to be any music playing in the background. It's just going to be time for us to, um, to pray to God. And so what we'll do is I'll begin, I'll, I'll say some things to help kind of introduce us to prayer time, and I'll, I'll give you guys some, some things to pray about as we go through the prayer time and then I'll close this at the end. But if you guys would bow with me, I'd like for us to, to pray silently uh, to begin. Our Father in heaven, we stand together here this morning and we are grateful for Jesus, for his death and his resurrection and the life that we have by your Spirit. We would have uh, no hope this morning, were it not for the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the midst of our circumstances. And while, Father, I understand that most of us um, probably don't fully understand or realize the depths of the issues that are um, emerging in our culture, Father, we, um, we are burdened for them. And we are heartbroken at the loss of life, at murder, and we grieve with those who grieve. So, Father, we'd like to take some time before we, before we pray for the families of those affected and for our nation. We want to take some time, Father, to pause and see if you have anything to say to us. Instead of asking you for things, we want to make sure that we are listening to you. We want to make sure that if you're trying to get our attention, that you have it. So for a few silent moments together, Father, we would ask that you would speak to us about our perspectives on racial tension, about our perspectives on 
status of our country. I pray, Father, we would listen to you. Father, forgive us for being right in our own eyes. Father, forgive us for um, our hearts and the judgments that we make with it. Father, we want to see the world the way that you see it. And we admit and we confess that that's difficult to do because we don't see everything. We don't know everything. We don't know what it's like to be other people. And while our perspective may seem right in our own eyes, Father, it's only your perspective that speaks truth to us. And we need to submit to that. Father, I, uh, I pray and we now together pray in silence uh, for the families, the Castile family, the Sterling family, the families of those Dallas police officers, but for all families who have been affected by injustice and people who do what is right in their own eyes. So let's spend a moment praying silently for those who have been affected by these most recent events. Father, you are the God of all grace and the God of all comfort. You are merciful. You are no stranger to injustice. You understand what it means to lose someone. So I pray, Father, that you comfort those who have been affected by these murders. Father, that you would open the eyes and the ears and the hearts of our nation, that we would see the reality of sin and that its only solution is found in your Son, Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would not place our hope in politics and laws. But Father, we would place our hope in you. And also, Father, that our hope in you would not be passive, but that it would be active. That we would do the things that you have called us to do. That we would... Extend hand where a hand is needed. That we would speak where speech is required. That we would sacrifice where sacrifice is necessary. Father, I pray that in our community that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus. And that we would not treat people as their sins deserve. That we would not be right in our own eyes. That we would be generous that we'd be full of love and compassion, that we would resemble and represent you as your children, for such we are. And so we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the next three weeks, the sermon series we're going to be talking about is called Faith and Fear. Uh, not, I should say coincidentally, this is a sermon series that I had prepared 
um, a number of weeks before the events of this past week, and so um, it was a little bit alarming to me that um, everything kind of transpired the way it did this last week, so I didn't really have to change much in my sermon leading up to today. Um, but over the next three weeks, I'd like for us to look at this, the relationship that faith and fear have together, what fear is and what faith is and how they relate to each other in the midst of uh, some stories that we'll look at in the scriptures together. So that will be um, our, our focus. This morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 4. And uh, before we get to the text, I'd like to talk for a second about fear itself. You know, our, our world is covered in fear, fear of failure, fear of disappointment, fear of death, harm, loss, injury, missing out, judgment, discrimination, and injustice. We're afraid that we'll lose our rights, our jobs, our freedoms, our money, our time, our reputation, our dreams. We're afraid that we'll get lost, sick, fat, old, wrinkled, taken advantage of, ignored, fooled, criticized, misjudged. And those are the fears we have for ourselves. We also have fears for our, for our families, our communities, our country, and our world. The tyranny of fear is impossible to resist. We allow it to paralyze us when we know we should act, to work us into a frenzy when we know we should remain calm. We allow it to lie to us about who we are, to stretch the truth beyond reason. We allow fear to dictate our relationships, to guide our interactions with each other. We allow it to justify our behavior and even to help us avoid responsibility. Fear is the most motivating feeling that we have. In fact, only fear can motivate us to do things we would otherwise be too afraid to do. Fear is everywhere. From the most basic marketing strategy to the growing threat of terrorism across the world, fear permeates our thoughts, our emotions, and our intentions. And eventually, it boils over and causes us to take action. And sometimes those actions are noble, and sometimes those actions are wicked. But in either case, what we do when we are afraid tells us a great deal about what we believe is truly powerful. What we believe can truly silence our fears. What we do when we're afraid tells us a great deal about what we believe is truly powerful. What we believe can truly silence our fears. So as believers in Jesus Christ, what should our relationship to fear be? How are we to respond to fears that we have in our past? And how can we prepare ourselves for fears that we have yet to face? So over the next three weeks, I'd like to remind us that the scriptures, what the scriptures teach us about fear and its unique relationship to faith in God. I would like to make the assertion that fear is not the problem. We are designed to be fearful creatures. The problem 
is that we have given our fear to objects that are not worthy of it. And misplaced fear causes our faith to shipwreck on the rocky ground of idolatry, which, in turn, begins to erode our faithfulness to God and our confidence in Him when our circumstances deteriorate. So this morning, I would like to begin in the fourth chapter of Mark's Gospel, and we're going to look at a situation where the disciples and their circumstances begin to deteriorate and what Jesus teaches them in the midst of those circumstances. So let's look at Mark chapter 4, the story of Jesus calming the storm. We begin in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark begins uh, in this particular story, and he says, On that day, or on the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Now, the entirety of the the fourth chapter of Mark is a collection of Jesus teaching the people. He's out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching from a boat to people on shore. And it's teachings filled about some of his most famous sayings, um, and he's teaching them in parables. In fact, two of Jesus' most famous parables can be found in this chapter, the parable of the sower and the parable about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. He teaches in lots of other parables too, but in each of these cases, the disciples are a little bit slow on the uptake with Jesus' teaching. They need Jesus to explain to them the parable in order for them to understand what he means. So after teaching them all day long in parables and all these different lessons, he tells the disciples very nonchalantly, hey, let's get in the boat. We'll go to the other side. Because Mark makes this point to emphasize that all of these things happen on the same day, the first thing we need to understand here in the text is that this story about Jesus calming in the storm should not be understood separately from the teachings that have preceded it. They are very much um, in connection with each other. Jesus had been giving them verbal explanations to their questions, and now they're about to have an experience, a lab, if you will, about all the things that they have just heard. The parables that Jesus talks about in Mark 4 um, are all about the promised culmination of the kingdom of God. Despite the circumstances of the world in which they live, the disciples were supposed to understand from these parables that God is in complete control of the events that guarantee the establishment of his kingdom, most obviously through his son, which was still, at this point in Mark's gospel, something that the disciples weren't They weren't putting two and two together yet. They hadn't quite fully realized who Jesus was. So the placement of this miracle story after Jesus' teaching in parables shouldn't be thought of as separate. Jesus both announces the coming of the kingdom of God in his teaching, and then he demonstrates the authority that he has to usher in that kingdom in this particular event that follows. So, into the boat they go. Now, a little bit of orientation. This is a map of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And up in the upper left-hand corner, you can see a, um, a place called Gennesaret, the plain of Gennesaret. You have Magdala, Gennesaret, and Capernaum. This northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee was known for where all the righteous Jews would live. Um, you had all different kinds of people that lived around the Sea of Galilee. Some were more righteous than others. But the ones, the good, you know, God-loving, God-fearing, and Um, we would say Bible-believing Jews lived in this upper northwestern corner. On the eastern side, you can see over here where it says Susita or Hippos. 
the eastern side of the shore began a region that was called in those days the Decapolis, Decapolis. It was a league of 10 Greco-Roman cities that ran into modern-day Jordan and even uh, wrapped around south into the central part of Israel. Now, the Decapolis, you think of a league of 10 Greco-Roman cities, think about 10 Vegases all within 25 miles of each other. 10 different cities filled with all sorts of paganism, all sorts of things that righteous Jews never associated with. Okay, Not a uh, place where they would frequent, to say the least. So when Jesus tells them that they're going to the other side, this was a fairly alarming announcement for them. This was not something that was just, you would just say that. It was very, whoa, what did he just say? And as if that were not enough cause for concern, rarely did fishing boats, you can see if you draw a line from Gennesaret to Susita, from the west side of the lake to the east side of the lake, fishing boats rarely would cross the entire span of the Sea of Galilee. It's 12 miles from top to bottom, it's seven miles from east to west. And most fishermen in those days never ventured out more than two or three hundred yards from shore. And if they were going to cross the lake, they would cross Caddy Corner from Magdala to Capernaum, or from Capernaum to Bethsaida, or from Bethsaida to Susita. They would hug the coastline in case something happened or they needed to get to shore. Rarely, if ever, would they just go straight across the depths of the sea. So not only are they going to the other side, not only are they crossing the middle of the sea, but the sun was setting and it was getting dark. There was nothing routine about this moment. Eyes were wide, mouths were shut, deep breaths. We trust this guy, right? So into the boat they go. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him. So they waste no time. Jesus doesn't even get out of the boat that he'd been teaching the parables to the crowds from. It was time to go. So they go. Now the boats that they were in, a couple things about these boats, just so you can have a picture for this. These boats were not large. They were about 26 feet long, 7 feet wide, and only about 4 or 5 feet deep, and at maximum could hold about 15 people. Uh, They required a minimum of 5 to be able to operate. Um, Now, the the amazing thing here is back in 1986, just 30 years ago, the Sea of Galilee experienced a really, really, really bad drought. And as the sea receded, um, they found uh, something protruding from the shore, and it was the remains of this boat, dated to the first century. And it was a very significant find because it allowed us to understand what we now see in this next picture Um, what the boats that they would have used in that time would have looked like. Um, It was not a significant boat. It would have been very easily tossed about by the waves, especially of a great storm. So I want to show you these pictures so that you have a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about as the disciples are crossing um, the sea. So let's continue. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, And the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So let's look here, and just again, to summarize, what are all the fear factors that are facing the disciples at this point? 
Number one, they're going to the infamous other side, Vegas. All right? Good Jewish boys don't go to Vegas. Their mom has always told them not to go there anyway. Number two, they were crossing the deepest part of the lake, which again was rarely, if ever, done. Number three, it was dark. Number four, a great windstorm now had arisen and was causing them to take on water and sink. And number five, and perhaps the most terrifying to them, Jesus is asleep. And think about this for a second. He's not just asleep. He is soaking wet asleep. So this storm didn't wake him up. Getting wet while he was asleep didn't wake him up. In fact, he had to be awoken by his disciples. Quite a scene. We should also ask the question, why are the disciples waking Jesus up? It is extremely unlikely at this point of the disciples' relationship with Jesus that they would have thought that Jesus could have woken up and calmed the storm. We should not think that the disciples are waking Jesus up so that he will silence the wind and the waves. I don't think that's why they're waking him up. They're, they're probably waking him up because they can't believe that he's still asleep. How, how can you still be asleep right now? Get up! Help us! A lot of commentators, in fact, find a lot of parallels in this account between the, this account and the account of Jonah. Very similar uh, situation in that regard. And secondly, the, they're disciples. They're not teachers. They don't know what to do. They're not in charge. You know, you go on a field trip with your teacher, you expect the teacher to tell you what to do if something goes wrong. But what do you do when everything's going wrong and the teacher's taking a snooze? He'd been preaching all day. He was exhausted. So they probably wake Jesus up and say, well, how can you sleep at a time like this? They're not expecting him to calm the storm. They want to wake him up because they think they're all about to die. And remember, their cause for alarm was significant. Four of these 12 men are fishermen, not their first time on a boat, probably also not their first time to be caught in a squall. So if the fishermen are freaking out, you understand that this is a very significant and perilous moment. They wake Jesus up and say, how can you sleep at a time like this? It's a question, but it's also kind of this passive-aggressive rebuke of their teacher. Now again, their fear is understandable. I mean, they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They're caught. There's no way they can make it to shore. This windstorm is causing them to sink. To sink. Death is a very real possibility. In fact, they believed that death was inevitable. But what happens? Verse 39. Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So Jesus wakes and stands up and gives two commands that are immediately obeyed. He commands the wind to be at peace and the waves to be still. The obedience is immediate. The wind disappears, the sea becomes calm, and the statement that Jesus is making at this point is completely clear. He is the Lord of all creation. Anyone who can command obedience from the wind and the waves is not just some guy. He's not just a good teacher. 
Mark links this story together with Jesus' parables in the earlier part of the chapter to emphasize that God is, in fact, in complete control of all of the events that concern and guarantee the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. Jesus was who he claimed to be, and he would do all that God said he would do. I mean, imagine this for a second. It's dark. It's dead calm. Complete silence. Nobody, none of the disciples are saying anything. Mouth shut, dead calm in the water. Jesus just silenced everything like that. And I wonder how long the silence was between verse 39 and verse 40. Like, as I'm picturing this in my own head. Then he turns and breaks the silence. And he turns to his disciples and says, verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In the sudden silence of what he had just commanded, Jesus turns to the disciples and asks them an echoing question. It's significant for three reasons. Number one, his question is an answer to their earlier accusation. Don't you care that we're perishing? How can you sleep at a time like this? He wasn't indifferent. He just wasn't afraid of the things that they were afraid of. And that's why he was asleep. He was at peace. He didn't share the fear of the wind and the waves with the disciples. Second, given everything that he had already taught them, Jesus expected the disciples to have had more faith in him than they demonstrated. Why would you fear the wind and the waves when the one whom you are following created both the wind and the waves and he's in the boat with you? And third, Jesus' question establishes this inverse relationship between faith and fear. The greater the fear of the storm, the less the faith in God became. Or if you could say it differently, the less they fear God the more they feared what was not God. Then verse 41, the disciples respond. And they were filled with, your Bible says, great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They missed their opportunity for faith in God when the storm was raging. But after Jesus' gentle correction, both their faith and their fear were reoriented. The proof? Mark tells us that they were filled with great fear after the storm had been silenced. The moment in this story where the disciples have the greatest amount of fear is when the wind and the waves are completely calm. And they look at each other and they ask each other this question. Who is this? And it's not a question about ignorance. It's not that they don't know who it is. They aren't asking in wonder. They're making a statement by asking a question. We might say it like this. The wind and the waves obey him. Do you realize then who this is? The disciples were no stranger to the verses in the Hebrew Bible that spoke about God's power over creation. There are even explicit verses that describe God silencing the sea. Job 26, 11 and 12. 
The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. Psalm 65, verse 7, Who stills the roaring of the seas, roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the people. So, if this Jesus just taught what we heard him teach on the shore, and now just did what we saw him do in the boat, then who is this? He's the Messiah? He's the Messiah. He's, he, he really is the Messiah. Jesus is teaching on the shore, and their experience in the boat helped the disciples experience fear the way God designed fear to be experienced in him. There is no need to fear the wind and the waves if you fear the one who not only created them, but also commands them. This is a fear without terror, a fear without hopelessness, a fear without despair. It's a respect and a reverence of someone who has infinite authority and power. It's a humility that acknowledges who is really in control and who is not. It is fear the way it was meant to be felt. This is the great fear that disciples finish this story with. They begin by fearing things in the world, convinced they are about to die, and then they end this episode fearing God and being at peace. Now, we may not find ourselves in the exact same situation as the disciples, but I believe the same principles that the disciples see here are principles that we can apply to our own lives. And I see three here that I want to leave you with this morning. Number one, fear of God rightly orients our faith in God. Fear of God rightly orients our faith in God. When our faith is in Jesus, we fear rightly both our Lord and the elements of his creation. When our faith is elsewhere, we are blinded by our fears and then eventually led astray by them. So, number one then leads to number two. Fear is not bad. Misplaced fear is. Much like the disciples probably did, we might wonder, what does faith have to do in a situation where death or harm seem inevitable? Were the disciples not supposed to be afraid that they were about to die? Was that wrong? Does having fear in a tense moment such as this one mean that we don't have faith in Jesus? These are good questions. Most of us don't have the wherewithal to even think about where our fear is when we're caught in a moment like this. That kind of fortitude escapes us because we have not taken Jesus at his word on a regular basis. We're out of practice. We're inexperienced. It has not become second nature to us. So on the one hand, it seems reasonable to experience the terror that the disciples displayed in such a perilous moment. But on the other hand, we also must remember that Jesus, under the same circumstances, was fast asleep. God doesn't promise to keep us from trouble. So when trouble comes, does that give us the right to panic? If our faith is in Jesus, then no, it doesn't. Panic is a sure sign that we consider created things 
to be worthy of the same kind of reverence as the one who created and controls them. When the disciples' fear was misplaced, they became wild, erratic, and panicked. And when Jesus corrected and reoriented their faith and their fear, it helped them see where their fear really belonged, and they became calm, even submissive. Why? That's principle number three. Our fear needs a worthy object. What other man, what other situation, what other event, what natural disaster is more worthy of our fear than the Lord of all creation? When we fear storms or violent men or political upheaval, we fear things that aren't worth being afraid of. God's power is omnipotent, beneficent, permanent. The power of men, governments, and storms is only physical and temporal at its best. Matthew 10.28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both the body and soul in hell. Psalm 118, verses 5-9 through says it beautifully. Listen. He says, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust Princes. God is the only one that is worthy of our fear. So, where does that leave us with the circumstances of this past month? We've seen white policemen kill black civilians. We've seen black civilians kill white policemen. Both exposing a growing realization that racism is alive and well in every part of our country, even here. We've seen the FBI fail to indict a presidential candidate for lying about her careless handling of classified material. We've seen the Supreme Court uphold the legitimacy and right of killing an unborn child in a mother's womb. We've seen massive terrorist attacks in Orlando, Istanbul, and Baghdad. The Zika virus is causing widespread alarm as it presses into the United States. We are watching the fabric of our American way of life beginning to fracture under the stress of political, racial, and economic upheaval. And that's just in the past month. Plenty to be afraid of. So how should we respond? How will we respond? First, we must respond with our faith and our fear rightly placed in the Lord Jesus. When we believe that the calmer of the storm can calm all storms, still all seas, conquer all death, unite all races, break all brokenness, right all injustices, and make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet, then we can experience these storms with our fear rightly oriented so that our faith will not fail, even if Jesus doesn't calm the storm right away, because he's under no obligation to do so.
And what's, what's even more strange is that the world around us won't understand the peace that we have. To them, it will look like we're asleep in the stern, not caring about them as they perish. And nothing could be further from the truth. We simply don't fear what they fear. And since we won't be gripped by fear in those moments of apparent peril, it will be the church that will have the opportunity to demonstrate to the world what true reconciliation looks like, what unity looks like, what compassion looks like, what safety and security really are, and where they come from. Then, and only then, can we begin to engage in the specifics of the problems and the issues in our communities and in our country. And then and only then can we do it with both courage and humility and in the name of Jesus and for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we understand the circumstances that we find ourselves in today are great. That they are perilous. That they are frightening. And these are just the circumstances that we see when we turn on the news. Not even to mention the, the fears that are in our families. And the fears that go unspoken and unnoticed. So I pray, Father, that your word this morning would be an encouragement to us. That it would would teach us, that it would give us faith in its right place, that our fear would not be, we would not be afraid of things that aren't worthy of the fear that only you deserve. I pray, Father, that as we learn how to do that, as we practice that, that our faith would be strengthened, that it would give us courage and humility to step forward into other places where people would simply panic, that we would understand and appreciate the peace that passes all understanding. We would be able to navigate the, the issues of this world in a way that resembles you. A way that preaches and proclaims the kingdom that you are, have come and will come to establish. And I pray that you will find us faithful even in the midst of peace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.